Chapter 10, please. Mark chapter 10. And this will be the third, the third week, the last week that we're looking at this. Uh, I mean, I call it theology, a theology of wealth. I'm not good with names. I never, I mean, I put zero time into names. Zero time. <laughs> if something comes up during the week, it's like, oh yeah, that's a good one. But yeah, I mean this, but you know, the theology of wealth, you know, the idea that the scriptures, they teach certain principles regarding wealth, regarding money. Of course, it is important. Um, we see that, you know, it's, it's, if this is your first time, it wasn't a topical sermon per se, as we were working verse by verse through Mark. It just happens to come up in the narrative of Christ. And so uh, with the rich young ruler, he's the one that kind of kicked all of that off. And so today we're on the very last section of this. And uh, it's, I mean, it, this, is, this is probably my favorite section of, the, of the, the, the whole thing, of the three that we've covered so far. But um, this, is, this is the response. So last week we saw that Jesus, uh, after the rich young ruler leaves, he looks around and he's amazed. It's almost like he's wondering if anybody else is going to leave and, and follow this rich young ruler. But he turns around and says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they're astonished. They're stunned. And he tells them, yes, that what I said is true. It's impossible with God to be part, to, to be grafted into the kingdom of God with, with, with man. With man, it's impossible. Excuse me, not with God. With God, all things are possible, not with man, though. And so uh, today, here's, the, here's the, the last response of this, and it's still the disciples. But Peter began to say to him, this is verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So here's the thing, right? So remember last week we were talking about how, how radical and how contrary this was when Christ says, if you're rich, it's, not, it's certainly not a guarantee that you'll get into the kingdom of God. In fact... Very few rich people actually end up in the kingdom of God. And these disciples are shocked because in their culture, of course, they're used to the idea that if you're rich, it's because God blesses you, God has blessed you, God has favor with you, that's why he's given you money. But Christ says, no, you know, actually it's a stumbling block. It's a great hindrance a lot of times. And so he turns it on its head, and then here the disciples, you know, in a sense they're still stunned, but it's amazing their reaction because Christ has just said in verse 27, he says, With people it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And then verse 28, you see Peter's response. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What does he try to say when he says that? Right? What is he trying to point out? He's, it's almost like he's, he's looking around and... You know, sometimes people say, Well, he, he's, he's self-congratulatory. You know, he's congratulating himself. He's like, Lord, you know, I know the rich young ruler didn't do it. And I know a lot of other people who have money, they, they didn't do it, but look at us. Look at what we've done. You know, we've, we've left everything. We have followed you. We've, we've done what you've told us to do. Sometimes people say, you know, I think it's more like, um, I think it's something like they're, they're looking around and they're saying, okay, if, if the rich aren't getting in, if, they're, if, you know, if so-and-so's not getting in, are we good? You know, or what, are, are we getting in? Are we okay? You know, now that we've left everything, I mean, that was okay, right? I mean, we're, we're good to go. And I think it's something like that because, remember, and here's the question, does our sacrifice count for anything? That's what he's asking. When we left everything, did that count for anything? Was that, you know, I, I mean, it's impossible, yes, but who's the one giving Peter grace? Who's the one giving Matthew grace and the disciples grace to follow him? We know it's God, right? God is the one who, 
who injects that grace into these guys so that they realize, okay, it's worth following the Messiah, it's worth following the Christ, no matter what the consequences are. They've done that, and now Peter's saying, okay, what about us? Are we cool? Are we good? And then, and this is, this is the glories of Christ. I mean, you see this so often. He comforts them. He comforts them. He doesn't say, well, you know, like the Roman Catholics, well, you just got to wait till the end and hope you actually get in there, you know. We don't really know. There's no assurance. He doesn't say that. He comforts them. He encourages them at 29. And he tells them about what it is. So they have left everything, right? They did leave everything. And so he's comforting them by saying, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father. You remember they did that. When the sons of Zebedee left their father, it explicitly says they're on the boat fishing. Christ comes, says, come and follow me, just like he said with the rich young ruler. And what do they do? They leave the nets, they leave the business, they leave the father, and they go and they follow Christ. Peter does the same thing, Matthew at the tax, at the tax booth. They all do this by God's grace. Right? It's God's grace. And so... What's going on here is that Christ is comforting them. Your sacrifice for the gospel is not overlooked. And in fact, not only is it not overlooked, but you are far better off now that you have sacrificed for the gospel than you would have been if you had stayed at the nets, if you had stayed at the business, if you had stayed doing whatever you weren't supposed to do, whatever God had called you away from and you kept doing it. You thought that that was the best way off? We saw with the rich young ruler. He thought it was, it was in his best interest not to follow Christ but to continue following mammon, his money. And we saw that with the rich young ruler, all of his treasure is in that temple. And that temple is going to be sacked in 40 years. He's, there's $1.1 billion of assets in that temple. That temple is going down. He doesn't know that. But if he had followed Christ, if he had just done what Christ had told him to do, he would have been better off. So here he has, you have Christ, Christ. And this is Hebrews 6, by the way. So this is in Hebrews 6. This is, it says, God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you do. Think of that. So when you're serving, when, you're, when, you, when you leave the comforts, when you leave things that God has called you away from, and you, and you listen to that and you obey that, and you sell out and you serve and you sacrifice and you're obedient, right? what's it saying in Hebrews? It's saying that God is not unjust. He will not forget the works that you do for Christ. Now, we know that these don't merit our salvation. Christ's works merits our salvation. But there are rewards in the sense of God sees what you're doing. He sees your labor. Now, again, motive is critical here. Right? Motive is essential. So what is driving me when I'm doing these things? But I'm thinking of this. You know, like, in our, I mean, there's so many examples, but think about this church plant, this specific church plant. You know, you have people who are driving in from all over the place, and I'm not talking about me. I get paid by the presbytery for it. You know, so it's not like, I'm talking about you, the others who don't get paid for this. I'm talking about others who are driving, you know, and we could go name, name them, but, you know, all the people that are driving, that's sacrificial, right? That's a sacrifice. That's a cost. It costs things. It costs people time. It costs people money. It costs people gasoline. But, you know, David and Carolyn, they used to drive to Amarillo from Fort Sumner. That's crazy. But they do that, right? And so they're like, man, yeah, Clovis is right down the street from Fort Sumner compared to Amarillo. But you guys get the point, right? So when you're talking about these things, and I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not doing this just to flatter. I'm saying this because these are good examples. Okay, when people are doing these things, when you're driving to church, when you're, you know, people have hosted things in their homes, people have brought all kinds of stuff for potlucks, you know, there's game nights, there's all these sacrifices. Um, even, you know, they're setting up, I mean, who's, who's, putting this there, you know? I'm not doing that. Who's doing that? People are breaking down the tables. They're putting signs. 
all of these things. They're bringing the signs out, the trash out, right? When it comes to a church plan, you're out there telling people about, you know, about Christ, about the church, all these things, okay? These are examples of sacrifices that we're doing that God does not overlook. That's the beauty of this, right? Now, again, we're not doing this to earn anything. We don't do this to pat ourselves on the back. I get that. We get that, right? We're not doing this so that we can be rewarded necessarily. But isn't it nice to know that God doesn't overlook that? That's what he's saying here. Invest And think of this. You know, these are like material things. But think about the time that people that you are investing into one another, the time, the emotional time and energy that goes into that, our marriages, our families, you know, when you're catechizing your children, when you're trying to raise your children in the right way, it takes time. It's difficult. There's a struggle there. They hardly ever seem to listen but you're doing it anyways, right? All of these things, they're sacrifices, man. The life of the Christian is a life of sacrifice and service and obedience. And that's not easy. By its very definition of what service, sacrifice, and obedience is, by its definition, it's tough. It's difficult. And so Peter, when he asked that, we can ask the same thing, you know, to an extent, like, you know, behold, you know, Lord, it's three o'clock on a Sunday. I left whatever I was doing to be here. He sees that. Lord, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I could just go home and, you know, watch television or something instead of hanging out with my child and trying to teach him about the Lord. But, I'm, you know, he sees that, these kinds of things, right? So that's encouraging. You know, and then there's the idea of forbearing with each other, forgiving each other. These are difficult things, you know, when you're, I mean, it's, you know, relationship, it's like this, you know, in a church plant, in any kind of situation, you know, um, and we'll see this especially when you're talking about the, the relationship aspect that he's talking about, you know, brothers, sisters, mothers, all that. But, you know, families are, are messy, you know, especially as you start getting close to each other. And, you know, it's amazing because, you know, most churches have had, think about this, most churches, most established churches, right? You have people in those churches that have known each other for 20 years, 15 years, 5 years even, 10 years. But we know that in this church, not a single one of us were going to church with each other or knew each other on the level that we know each other now two years ago, three years ago. Nobody knew each other like that, right? But here we are, we're interacting with each other. I mean, how? what are we, two years, two and a half years? Okay, so two and a half years, right? We're two and a half years. And the thing is, is we all come from different backgrounds, from different denominations, from different church experiences, from different life experiences. And now all of a sudden we're thrown into a church plant and we're, we're, we're called to work very closely together. Well, guess what's going to happen? And by God's grace, I think he's given this church a lot of grace. He's given us a lot of grace, right? But you know what's going to happen. There's going to be uh, personalities that rub you the wrong way, words that rub you the wrong way, that don't sit with you right. And so that's that's that's... That's family. You know, that's what happens in a family. But here's the point, okay? As this has taken place, what's our response? Well, it's service, it's sacrifice, it's, 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 uh, it's persevering, it's, it's esteeming others better than ourselves, this kind of mindset. And so, again, not to get anything out of it, but because, number one, that's how Christ acts, but isn't it nice to know that when I'm forbearing with a person that's very difficult to me in my temperament, well, guess what? You're not doing it for nothing, right? You're doing it because this is a brother or sister in the Lord. Christ sees your works. He sees what's going on. He gives you the strength. Um, you know, and even at work, you know, when people show up at, at, you know, on time and you're working hard, not because you have a great boss or a great job all the time, but because God has called you to do this, right? You work as though you're working for God, not for man. 
And so that's what he's saying, that whatever it is that you're doing for the kingdom of God, for the work of God, he sees these things. They're not overlooked. That's cool. That's, that's encouraging. And that's what he's trying to tell these guys. And remember who this is written to, Roman Christians. right? So these, they need to be encouraged. Roman Christians have just left everything, and they're seeing persecution. They're seeing struggles. They're seeing suffering. They're seeing their children go through things. They need to be encouraged that what you have done is a good thing. I know people think you're crazy. I know people call you nuts, you know. I'm thinking, you know, people drive it in. Like, I bet, you know, people think Carolyn and David, not in this church, but, you know, outside, they're like, yeah, we're going to drive an hour and a half away to go to a good church. People are like, there's like 50 churches in Fort Sumner. Or are there? (laughs) There's three. (laughs) But you guys see the point, though, right? I mean, that's the thing. We do it because... We know it pleases God, and God sees these things. But most importantly, it pleases God, and God sees these things um, in the sense of not to reward us. He does reward us. He says that right here. But he's a just God. He sees what's going on. Okay. Now, the second thing, though, is the house, brothers, mothers, all that kind of, What's going on there? Remember when Christ was with his disciples, and uh, Mary comes, and his brothers come, and they're trying to... They, speaking of crazy, they think Christ is crazy. They think he's lost his mind. And they go looking for Christ... And the disciples come and they say, hey, your, your, your mother and your brothers are looking for you out there. Remember that? And Jesus looks around and he says, who are my mothers? Who's, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he starts pointing to his disciples. He says, the ones who do the will of God. These are, my, these are my mothers. This is my brother. These are my brothers. That kind of thing. So what you have with Christ when he's saying this regarding these relationships, he's talking about a, a, a new community that's forming under Jesus Christ. A new community forming under Christ. Now here, here get this though. Get this, okay? So, if you go back into the Old Testament, and you see Abraham, right? You see, you have Abraham. Okay, what we, what we call the people of God is usually like Israel, right? Israel, that's the, the people of God. Well, what is Israel? Okay, it starts with Abraham and his family. And then, and then Abraham has Isaac. And then Isaac has Jacob. Well, Jacob is the one who is renamed Israel. Remember that? After he wrestles with God, God renames him Israel. He's the one who strives with God. So he, he has a new name. So Israel, right? Well, well um, and then Jacob, of course, Jacob eventually has a son, Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt. Eventually, Jacob and all the, all the family go, and they go see Joseph in Egypt. And then 400 years later, you have Moses raise, rise up. Moses, under, under that Pharaoh, with you know Moses, when he's alive, uh, Moses and Aaron, what do you have? You have a multitude of what? The one family. It's a family. Think of this. What we're talking about here, it's always been a family. The idea of family has always been ingrained, intertwined in what it is to be God's people. This is not a new concept. This idea of Christ speaking in terms of familial concept, that's not a new thing. That's how it always was. Now, people outside the family can be grafted in, even in the Old Testament. You had Gentiles come and they were grafted in. Same thing in the New Testament, right? Most of us are Gentiles. We are not from the ethnic descendants of Abraham. But what do we have? We're grafted in. How? Through faith, through the Messiah. So that's what he's doing. So he, and that's why, again, I mean, you can, it, you know, you talk to a Jew, it's, it's, a, it's an amazingly tragic thing when you talk to, like, a, let's say, a professing Jewish person. And professing in the sense of, you know, that they, 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 follow, they want to follow the Torah and they, they go to synagogues on Saturdays and things like that. And then you say, okay, well, what, what about Jesus? What do they say? Oh, he's a deceiver. God was out of his mind. Well, what is that, you know... What does that say about that person? 
who thinks that about the Messiah. What does that mean? What Christ is telling us is, okay, they are not part of the family. You see that in Romans 11. They're not part of the family. They've been pulled out. We as Gentiles have been grafted in. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's always been about a family. It's always been that way. But you also remember places like uh, Matthew 10, when Christ says he came not to bring peace. You're like, wait a minute. Christ didn't say that. That wasn't Christ. That was some, right, you know how they always try to twist it. Like, no, no, somebody else wrote that, like the Mormons. You know, that's a, somebody, you know, like a lost book or something. But no, what does he say in Matthew 10? And to their credit, they wouldn't say that about this. Other places, though. All right, Matthew 10, 34. Look what he says. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his what? Household. How is that possible? Now think of this. How is this possible? Okay, so, and then he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So what's he talking about, right? Because, you know, Christ is the Prince of Peace. You see that in the Scriptures. You can't get around that. So what is he talking about? Well, when he's talking about a sword, right? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He's not talking about, you know, big, long scimitar or something, like, a you know, whatever the people use in the Middle Ages. He's not talking about that. We know that. What's he talking about? And he's, he's, he's not talking about, okay, now that I'm a Christian, I'm gonna, I have to, you know, hate my mother. Mom, I'm not talking anymore. I'm a Christian. You know, or my, my brother. I'm not talking anymore. I'm a Christian. Or whoever it is. My son. My daughter. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that the gospel brings about tension and conflict within relationships. We have probably, all of us, experienced that to some degree or another. I mean, I always think, even this last week, actually, I was talking to my sister who I love. She's so, she's so pagan, man. And, uh, and, and so I was talking to her, I think, yeah, it was on her birthday, but, you know, the second the conversation starts veering into a direction of, of something of depth and profundity where, like, your spirit, you know, your soul, what happens? All right, come on. Do we, do we got to talk about that, you know? Do we have to bring that up? And I'm like, no, you're right, bro. Let's keep talking about, you know, like, what our favorite color is and how the weather is. And, but we know how it is. As opposed to, so here's Thanksgiving, right? And Thanksgiving comes around or Christmas or whatever. And we know you, you're walking on eggshells with certain family members. You can't bring this up. You can't bring that up. But then you come around the brothers and sisters and it's the opposite. There's, there's a unity. Now we can talk about these things that we really care about, that we actually, like the things about our soul, the things about Christ, the things, you know, the things that, are, that, we, that we love, that we're passionate about. And even if there is disagreement in the camp, we're able to disagree in a way that we're still brothers and sisters, just like in a family, right? So it's a beautiful thing because what he's doing here, now check this out. So he's talking about the formation of a new community centered around Jesus Christ. This is radical, centered around himself, his person. But look what he says. Not only are there relationships, he says, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. A hundred times as much what in the present age? That's the question, right? He tells us houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms. That's what you're going to receive, a hundredfold. A hundred times more now that you're in this community, in this family, centered around Jesus Christ, than you, than you had outside of this. Now, 
a few things on this. Okay, it's like this. Um, sometimes we think about, you know, when it comes to coming to Christ, we think about, we think of it in terms of, okay, what do I have to give up to follow Christ? But here Christ is actually turning that on its head and it's saying, he's saying, it's not about what you have to give up when you come to Christ. Look what you get when you come to Christ. Look at the blessings of coming to Christ. You know, sometimes, I mean, that's especially like lost people, nominal Christians, you know, when it's like, hey, you really, and, and, and we can bring it up in that way. Christ himself does. Where you are talking about, okay, this, count the cost, right? What's the sacrifice involved here? That's important. That's a good question. But also don't forget what is, what, what is involved in this? Well, None other than the Christ who is, you know, like the scriptures say, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you get the pearl of great price. You get the treasure that was buried in the field that's worth all the other treasure. That's what, that's what you get when you come to Christ. Not only that, but you also get, what does he say? Houses, families, etc. Well, how, you know, how does that work? I, before, I was a, before I was saved, I had a house. After I've, now that I'm saved, I still have one house. I don't have a hundred houses. What's he talking about? I do have a hundred houses. I have, here's what's cool. I could, and, and before uh, we started having children in, in, you know, health stuff, I used to travel a lot. And others have traveled a lot, right? And, and I promise you, this is true to this very day. You can go anywhere in this country right now I don't care what city it is. I don't care how small the town is. I don't, it doesn't, I don't care if it's on the East Coast, West Coast, and liberal San Francisco, New York City. I promise you, right now, within probably three days, usually less, if you're going that way and you need a place to stay, there will be a place to stay for you because you're a Christian. And it will not be hard to find somewhere for you. A house, I promise you. And, we've, I, I mean, and we know that, right? You go anywhere, and the other thing is like anywhere in the world. You know, you go anywhere in the world, there are brothers and sisters anywhere in the world. Everywhere in the world, this has taken place. So we really do have brothers and sisters and homes and all these things that Christ, we have received. It's, it's like this. We now, there's a new family of ever-enlarging disciples. That's what's going on here. As the gospel goes forth, as the gospel spreads, it's ever-enlarging. This is the importance of hospitality, by the way. This is the importance of discipleship, by the way. When you're investing time into people, when you're spending time in people. When you're opening homes, when you're, when, you're, when you're sharing meals together, things like that. That's the beauty of this. Why? Because that's what families do. That's what we're called to do as God's people. And you see this language in, let's say, for instance, when Paul says, Great Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Remember Timothy? Paul tells Timothy to treat younger women as what? Sisters. To treat... Older men as what? As fathers. To treat younger men as brothers. The idea of family there. Paul says, I was as a nursing mother to you. I was as a father to you. That's what you have in this. That's what God gives us. So anywhere in the world, I mean, this, this is, in other words, this, these are the intangible rewards of discipleship. There's friendships. There's joys. There are blessings that, you know, we take for granted. But that's what you see here. And here's the other thing, too. Here's, here's like the, uh, you know, there's pros to this, but just like in any family. And I mentioned the messy part, but here's the thing, right? So when God goes out and he, he you know, God has his sheep out there. He elects people. We know that. And, he, and, and those sheep come in, right? Those sheep come in by God's grace. And they believe in Christ and they're following Christ. Well, here's, here is the beauty of the church. This is also why things like, um, I always think of like 
like campus ministries where you just have a bunch of teenagers hanging out with a bunch of teenagers for four years. They don't see anybody else as far as like Christians. And that's, that's for them church, right? Just hanging out with a bunch of teenagers their age. They like the same things. They do that for four years. Same thing, though, with like biker churches. Same thing with black churches, right? What's the problem with that? Well, here's, well, what the problem is, is that's not what the gospel, when the gospel comes, the gospel saves people from all different types of backgrounds, temperaments, social stances, you know, econo- economical situations, um, even, even, you know, different, even, uh, you know, political emphases, those kinds of things. So God is out here, right? God is saving people from all different types of backgrounds. And the church consists, what the gospel does is the gospel brings together these people from all different types of backgrounds, all different types of upbringings, you know, everything. And then you get together, and what happens? Here's the thing, right? So if I'm, if I'm God, and I praise, right, I'm not, but I'm saying, like, if, it, if, if election was up to me, like, who God chooses and who God doesn't, what am I going to do? I'm going to go around and I'm going to pick everybody I like. You know, my old buddies, you know, man, I'm going to pick him. Man, I, I really like hanging out with that guy. I'm going to pick him. I'm going to pick this guy. You know, this guy, this guy's got a lot of money. He could, he could be useful. I'm going to pick that guy. This guy's a great rapper. You know, I'm going to pick him. And I'm going around picking all, right? But here, here's, here's how it really works. God picks. God chooses. God brings us and them into the church and now, guess what? I'm around people that have different temperaments than I have, different backgrounds than I have. They look different. They, they work at different places. They, have, you know, they, 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 they speak differently, all these kinds of things. But that's the church. And this is Christ's bride. You see that? So that's kind of like the, you know, again, a lot of times people are like, well, I'm going to pick a church based on, you know, like, What's in it for me? You know, what pleases me, etc. You know, like the, the type of people I... But that's not what the church consists of. And that's just like a family. You know, when you grow up, like my sister, for instance, uh, actually her personality, I get along with her. My brother, on the other hand, my biological brother, he's in the faith. But as far as like his interests and stuff, we're a lot different. But he's in the faith, so we're a lot closer. My sister, personality-wise, we're closer, but she's not in the face, so we're like miles apart. But here's the beauty of it. In the church, right, just like in a family, I don't, I'm, I'm raised in a family. It's not like God says before we're born, okay, what are some personalities that you want to be born around? What, what, do you, what do you want your brothers to be? What do you want your sisters to be? How do you want them to act? You know, do you want them to like, um, you know, like trucks and cars or sports? Or what do you, he didn't ask that, right? You're placed into a family, and you learn to get along, right? That's basically how it is. Same thing in the church. You are placed here. God places all of us in this church. And so now we're surrounded by people that are my brothers and sisters. Praise God, I'm not the one who chooses. We don't choose. God chooses. And now it's about, okay, now that I have this family, again, this is kind of like the difficulty. That's why there are times in the flesh where we get impatient. We get, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to be forbearing because you're like, man, I don't get this, dude. This is not, I have no idea where he's coming from. Well, praise God. There's, there's, you know, it's not just like strict uniformity in the church. There is diversity in the church of all kinds, right? But it's centered around Christ. That's the beauty of it. The unity that we have is in Christ. And so that's what he's saying. So now we have a family around the world, worldwide, universal. That's why where you get the word Catholic, universal. Not Roman Catholic, but, you know, little c Catholic, universal. There's a universal church around the world, and there was a church in the days of Abraham, and there'll be a church, you know, long after we're dead. And they'll still be our brothers and sisters. 
That's what we have in the gospel. Now, he does mention this, though. I want to look at this. He mentions the phrase, along with persecution. And that's important. That's important for the people that are reading this in Rome 2,000 years ago. Their friends are being persecuted. They themselves are being persecuted. Some of them, and I know I've said this, especially last year, I think, when we were in the first part of Mark, but you know, some of the, what was going on in Rome at the time is Nero's catching a lot of these Christians and he's covering them with pitch. And he lights them on fire and he puts them in the arenas. He actually lights his garden parties with these Christians that are torches, basically burning. Um, he'll, he'll tie them into these, these uh, animal sacks and stitch it up and then throw them into the Colosseum where you have the, 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 the tigers and the lions. and you know It's entertainment for the crowds when they see these Christians wiggling in their, their little uh, skin sacks. And then, and then what do you have? The animals pouncing on them. And, but that's what's going on to these Christians. So they need to be encouraged, and they also need to be reminded, right? What you're going through is not unusual. When he mentions, right in the middle of it, you see how weird this is? I mean, it's just, it, ju- it jumps out at you because he's talking about, hey, guys, this is so good. You're going to receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms. You're like, yes, yes, yeah, I, man, along with persecutions. You're like, 100 times as much persecutions? Things stop. But he mentions it. And that's true. Because as the gospel advances, what happens? You meet resistance. As Think about this. As you grow in your own Christian life, what happens? You meet resistance with your flesh. You meet resistance with the devil. You meet resistance in the community. I mean, we had a lot of resistance... We still do, to an extent. You know, as, and we, I mean, that was the beauty of that, man. You see the gospel, as the gospel goes forth outside of the walls of this church, what happens? There's resistance out there. People come against it. People don't want to hear it. People, even if they do want to hear it, they want to spin it and make it say things it doesn't say. So there's resistance as the gospel advances, and there's resistance in our Christian existence, in our Christian experience, our lives, in the sense of, as we go through trials, it doesn't have to be persecution from, let's say, you know, uh, when, whenever we're um, bringing out, you know, talking about the, the evils of abortion or anything like that, of course, you know, there's persecution, but it, it doesn't have to be, even be that. It, you know, persecution is a, another word for persecution is something like trials. You know, trials. So persecution is a, a you know, trials is like a broad term, but, but when you're talking about trials, here's the thing we need trials, we need persecution. Why? Think about when, um, so you have Moses. And after Moses, you have Joshua. Joshua leads the guys into the promised land. And what does God do? What does God not do? You know what God does not do? When Joshua and the, the, the guys and the, the army, they go into the promised land, you know what he does not do? God does not wipe everybody out and just clear the road for Joshua. He doesn't do that. What happens? He leaves the enemies in the land. Why? Because Joshua and the guys need to fight the enemies. They need to learn how to fight. It's good for them. Resistance and conflict and perseverance and trials and toils and all those things, that's good for them. Again, it, you know, Hebrews 12 talks about how God disciplines the one he loves. He's talking about training the one he loves. He's talking about building that person up. But why? Because he loves. If you're in Christ, you and I, are, you know, the purpose of our life is to be like Christ. And in order to be like Christ, we have to go through trials. We have to go through struggles. We have to be put in places where our patience is tested. That's what we need. So, you know, again, persecution is very specific here. I get that. But, again, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, this can happen through anything. You know, as far as this, 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 when you come into the Christian faith, I mean, you know how it was. Remember when you, before you were saved, and you just got to do whatever you wanted to do. At least you wanted to. At least you thought you could, right? And you're just out there, you're, 
you know, smoking a joint when you want to smoke a joint. You, 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 you know, we can go on and on again. But you do this and that. You're like, man, this is the good life. It's not the good life, though. We know it's not the good life. It's the wretched life. It's the miserable life. Sin, you know, pleasures of sin only last a season. And then comes judgment. That's what Moses recognized. But here's the point, right? When you come into the Christian faith, now you recognize, okay, there are, you know, there are, um, there are joys. And there are very, I mean, when, and when we say joy, we say, you know, no matter what you're going through, there's joy. But it's also at the same time knowing, okay, I don't live for myself anymore. I don't go just smoke a joint or, or you know, get, get wasted or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, that, those are two obvious ones. But, you know, this is, this is what I'm saying. Like, in Christ now, we are under our Lord and Savior, how we act, how we operate, how we think, how we talk. And that's tough. That's where the trial comes. Man, that's tough. But sometimes, you know, you really want that or, or this. And, but, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, right? The Holy Spirit is going to convict me. The Holy Spirit is in me. But you see the example of Christ. You know, you see all these things. So, so in other words, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised by trials, persecutions. But he does also say in the age to come. Notice what he says here. In the age to come, eternal life. And isn't that the point? I mean, you know, even if there was no eternal life, we should live for God anyways. Even if God was, you know, from the second we sin, we're born in sin, we come out and it's like, all right, man, there's no heaven for you. Well, we should still live to the glory of God because he's worth it. You know, we shouldn't live for the glory of God just so we can get something out of it. But isn't it nice to know we do get something out of it? There is eternal life. That this life for Christians to, to, to die is gain. Isn't that nice? Isn't that the point of the resurrection? That's why when the gospel is going out and they're preaching about the resurrection, people's minds are being blown. They've never heard something like this. You know, as far as a man who is dead is physically, literally come back from life, and now there's a promise that you will too. He says this in verse 31, this last verse, but many who are first will be last in the last verse, and this ties it all together with the rich young ruler. Right? In that culture, who is first? Well, the rich, the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, they're first. Christ says, no longer is that the case. You know, um, and there's other ways to look at this as well. So in a sense, this is also talking about like even like Israel, the nation of Israel, eth- ethnic Israel. You know, um, they all expected them to be first, but they're not first. The Gentiles, you know, when they're grafted in, a lot of the, a lot of the Jews are, are left out. A lot of the Gentiles are grafted in. You also have this just in church history. I mean, or even the days of Christ. Think of this. Okay, Judas is holding the money bag, right? Judas is, is part of that 12, the 12 disciples. Paul is, what is Paul holding around this time? Paul's holding the coats of the people who are stoning the first Christian martyr, right? Judas is holding the money bag for Christ. Paul is holding the coats of the people who are stoning the first Christian, but there's to be a reversal. Who's left out? Judas. Who's brought in? Paul. You see this in church history. You see, going back to the days of Christ, you know, the, the gospel is exploding in the Middle East. People are being brought in in Antioch, Jerusalem, all these places, Constantinople, right? Well, what, what, are the, what are the areas outside of the Middle East look like when it comes to Christianity? Well, there is none, right? There's, there's barbarity, there's cannibalism. You've seen it in the church history studies. You know, these guys are savage everywhere else in the world. Well, what happens? There's a reversal eventually. The gospel goes up and around, even to India, China, all these places. These places that were pagan and barbaric, they're brought in, and the Middle East is now barbaric. And then what happens today? 
You fast forward, you know, I mean, think of the Reformation. The days of the Reformation, Western Europe is blanketed with the revival of, of, of Christianity going forth. Now look at Western, the Western world today, right? Now it's, there's a reversal. The Western world is pagan, barbaric, butchering each other, cannibalism, killing each you know. I guess we're not cannibalism at cannibalism yet, but, you know, we're getting there. But here's the thing. Where do you have, and this is, this is statistically a fact, there are now more Christians in the southern and eastern part of the world than there are in the western part of the world for the first time in the history of the church. So, so, so now there's been a reversal. There are revivals taking place in India and in China. I was just reading this book. They were talking about there was like there's an underground church plant. One church, and I don't know, I guess they're all connected, but there's 100,000 members of this church in China. And it's an underground church. You know, I mean, it's just like, what? And they're all underground churches. They're, you know, they're all smaller churches. But they're all kind of, and it's just like, you know, that's, it's exploding over there. It's crazy. So there's a reversal. You know, 500 years ago, that was the dark play. I mean, there was no Christianity. All the Christianity was over here, now it's not. So you see the reversal. Why the reversal? Well, it's to keep us humble. That's the first thing. Paul says, don't become proud, but fear. He says that in Romans 11. When he's talking about, you know, you think you're, you think you're, you're, you're something because as a Gentile, you've been grafted in, but don't, don't be haughty because if God if he removed, you know, let's say ethnic Israel, a lot of the branches that were ethnic Israel, what's to say he's not going to remove the Gentiles? So don't be haughty, but fear, he says. And same thing with us. You know, sometimes we can be haughty about our standing with God, but he says don't be haughty, but fear. In the sense of keep looking to Christ, persevere, you know, be humble. Be humble as we encounter people who are lost, encounter people who are not part of our family, our new family, right? As we encounter them, what are we called to do? Well, it's by grace alone that I've been called into this family. As I'm interacting with people outside, it's by grace alone that they're going to be brought in. So that keeps us humble and that keeps us looking to Christ. So we're to persevere, keep looking to Christ. That's what he's talking about. But ultimately, here's the beauty of it. Just to summarize, you know, the last three teachings of the theology of wealth. Wealth, when it comes to the kingdom of God, means nothing. Nothing. Just like influence, just like talents, just like whatever, you know, whatever... Whatever standards of, of, of um, acclaim that, that we try to place upon people, they mean absolutely nothing. What matters is, is Christ. And he's forming a community around himself. And when you come in, you now have brothers and sisters who are in, and you also have gifts, and you're around others who also have gifts that they can now use for the kingdom of God, that you can use for the kingdom of God. So that's the family. That's what it's talking about. And again, they're shocked because they thought, man, if, if the rich don't get in, well, who can get in? Well, nobody except through Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. Let's pray. Oh Christ, we are, we are uh, we're blessed today, O oh Lord, to be able to know that not only do we have brothers and sisters in our midst, but that we have an elder brother in Christ. We thank you, O oh Christ, for your example. We thank you for your long-suffering with us, the ways that you've persevered, and that, uh, the ways that you've overcome the trials that you yourself went through, the persecutions. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, Lord. It's, it's such a blessing to have brothers and sisters around the world, Lord, people who uh, would, would do anything, lay down their lives for one another, Lord. We can genuinely say that in this church, Lord, that, that we would sincerely lay down our life, lay down our time, our energy for one another. Lord, we know that only the gospel can do this, only your Holy Spirit. So we praise you for that. We praise you, O oh God, that you've brought together the people in this church. We pray for those who are out of town today as well. 
those who have uh, even moved, Lord, we, we know that we have uh, our brothers and sisters uh, who have moved and, and, and uh, gone to different states, and, and Lord, they, they too remain our brothers and sisters, Lord, and we also know that there's brothers and sisters in this community that we haven't met yet that you'll bring in, and so Lord, we thank you. We thank you, O oh God, that uh, you've given us so many riches through these brothers and sisters, Lord, that, that uh, you've placed us together uh, so that we can continue to serve each other and help each other in these trials, in the midst of, of this warfare that we're in as we go forth to fight for the, the sake of the gospel, Lord, as, as we uh, go forth to do so valiantly and, and with humility and with gentleness and with self-control. And so, Lord, we need these things. We need each other. We thank you, O oh God, that you have not left us alone beneath some tree with just our Bibles, but that you've given us a, a group of brothers and sisters we thank you, O oh God, and we pray that you would continue to build us up and uh, that everything would be done around Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And we pray all these things in His name. Amen.